Hope it does. Welcome to all our new members. And we got a bunch more in the pipeline, I'll tell you. So that's great. Great to have people wanting to become a part of our church family and to uh, share in the joy of serving Jesus here, which is what we're doing. Coming to God's Word now. And for the past two weekends, we have sat on one particular individual who met Jesus and had this extraordinary moment that Jesus said, uh, wherever the gospel goes, people are going to tell the story of what this woman uh, did. And the, the woman's name was Mary. And Mary gave to Jesus a, a most extravagant and generous gift by uh, taking some very expensive perfume, extremely expensive perfume, and pouring it out on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. Last week, we asked the question, was the perfume worth more or less after it had been poured out? Which is a compelling question because in, in our way of thinking, in a, in, a, in a natural way of thinking, perfume is one of those commodities that once you've sprayed it, once you've poured it, it's like it's done, right? So it would seem then to the financially oriented that what she gave now was worth nothing. And of course, uh, uh, one individual that was there at the scene made his opinion clear, speaks into it, his name was Judas, and says... What a waste of money this is. It should have been sold and given to the poor. Now, John adds the comment that he really wasn't interested in helping the poor. He was really interested in helping himself to the money that would have been in the bag if she had sold the perfume. He was interested in helping himself. So Jesus then speaks in and says, uh, what she has done is a beautiful gift and um, rebukes, rebukes Judas's perspective. And we see from that then that Jesus and God have a different way of looking at the worth and the value of things. And we saw last week that Jesus, when it, his exhortation regarding how we use the resources that God makes uh, available to us, that puts under our stewardship, is to make sure that we are, one, laying up treasure in heaven, Matthew six nineteen. Secondly, that we're working very hard to be rich toward God, Luke 12. And that we are trusting in his promise that he will reward every sacrifice and offering that is given in his name, Matthew 19, 27. And so we saw then there are just two very different ways of looking at worth and value. And Jesus and Judas give us the two paradigms. When it came to Mary's gift, Judas believed that the gift was now worth nothing. Jesus believed it now to be worth even more. From Judas's perspective, everything is what it's worth materially and financially, it's just the bottom dollar, baby. That's all I care about. From Jesus' perspective, worth is whatever it is worth in eternity. That was his bottom line. So Jesus and Judas. And we were challenged then to ask the question, in the way that I live my life, the way that I'm oriented, the way that I steward the things that God gives to me, who do I more resemble? Do I more look at life and look at things from Judas' perspective? Or do I look at things more from jesus perspective and a great way to know which you are is whether there is any resemblance to what mary did because mary clearly was on the jesus side and her love for christ led to an extravagant and a generous giving judas loved money mary loved jesus which are we compelling question i think now today's message is is not a message trying to convince judas's to become mary's that was last week, and uh, if, if, if that's you, I'd encourage you to get online and listen to that message over and over 
and over again. Because that's not the point of this message. This message today is for those who, whose hearts are like Mary, but who are kind of saying to themselves, I don't even know how to begin that. Like, what does that look like? What, what does a generous life practically look like? So this is going to be an intentionally practical message. It's like part three off of John 12, Mary and her extravagant gift. But I do want to turn to a different passage that I think is very helpful when it comes to this whole matter of generosity, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. I will stop there. And what I want to do is just a very brief exposition on this, uh, on this passage. And so we begin with the, with the bigger picture that Paul here is writing to the Corinthians. And when we did 1 Corinthians, you may remember the city of Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was the New York, the New York of its day, kind of New York, Las Vegas of its day. And so these are wealthier Christians that are in this Corinthian church, and he writes to them about a fundraiser that he is collecting for the saints in the city of Jerusalem who, due to the persecution in Jerusalem, had come upon hard times, and they were in a, in a measure of, of suffering. And so he is collecting from all the various churches of Asia Minor this gift that they're going to deliver to the saints there in Jerusalem. Notice that he begins... Uh, to tell the Corinthians about this by telling them about the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Now, what's interesting about this is that while Corinth was wealthy, Macedonia was not. In fact, they were very poor, impoverished, and yet what does Paul say? They gave an extraordinarily generous gift. Notice a few of the things that he describes here. Their, quote, test of affliction. And again, quote, their extreme poverty. Yet in spite of this, he says in verse 2 that they had a kind of wealth. What was their wealth? A wealth of generosity. So they were financially poor, but in, in, the, in the category of generosity, they were wealthy. They were rich. So what he's doing here then is he's holding up these Macedonian Christians in front of the of the Corinthian Christians and saying, basically, look what your poor brothers and sisters did. And notice the qualities of the giving of these, of these Macedonians. In verse 2, they gave out of their poverty. Verse 3, they gave beyond their means. Again, verse 3, they gave freely. That's sort of this happy to give it sort of thing. And then finally, they begged to give. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there was begging going on in regards to the opportunity to take up another offering. 
In fact, I listened very carefully during this service, and I didn't hear anybody after the plates were passed the first time going, we want to do another one, please. Pastor Steve, we'll stay late. We don't care. We want to take another offering. Did I miss somebody shouting that? I didn't hear anybody saying that so much. But that was the spirit of the Macedonians. They begged for the privilege of give. They wanted to participate. They gave sacrificially. They gave happily. They gave urgently. And I think in these Macedonian churches, the offering was like the highlight of the service. Now, have you ever been to a church where the offering was the highlight of the service? I have. In fact, it came to my mind as I was preparing this. I remember being in Sierra Leone, Africa, which is one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world. If you saw the movie Blood Diamonds and, and all of that, then you know about what that civil war, I mean, they have, they have next to nothing. And I was over there. We have a ministry that we support over there. And I was there as a part of that. And I was preaching at this Sierra Leonean, is that the way you say it? I don't even know. Sierra Leonean <laughs> church there. And so I'm sitting in the front row and they, my memory is they announced the offering and the way that they took the offering in the, in the, in the church was that they had the plates at the front and every row in the church would stand up, would come down, would put their offering in the plate and then they would go back. Now that I think there are other churches that do that kind of thing. What was noteworthy to me about this was the way in which they did it because as they got up to come down, they didn't, they didn't, it wasn't like a funeral procession, you know, where everybody's going like this and then dropping it in and walking back to their place. I actually dug out a picture and it's a blurry one. I'm sorry. But this is from that service that I'm talking about, them coming down the aisle for the offering. And indeed, they were dancing. Now, some of you are like, well, they just like to dance. <laughs> is it possible that they like to give? And that maybe dancing and giving are two things that go together. I think we could use a little more dancing around here, don't you think? Now, some of you are going, oh, I... We have former Baptists here. I don't even know how. I wouldn't even know what to do. <laughs> but I think that would be rather fun to do sometime, don't you think? just for something different have the plates up here give everybody an opportunity to do their thing on the way down i could think of a few songs that i think could help us get there with that on the way down and take an african offering how about before before i die or retire from this place we take one african offering could we do that now i'm I'm young, so this gives you lots of time to work on your moves for what you would do. I kind of imagine we announce that we're going to be doing it the next weekend, and you know the, the, the dance studios in Northwest Indiana fill up, and people are like, oh, you have a ball or something you're going to? No, it's for the offering at church next week. I've got to learn how to do this. But don't miss the point. This is the poorest church I've ever been in. And it's the only church that danced for the offering. It's what he's saying about the Macedonians. They're the poorest, 
And yet they had such joy and gladness and generosity in their giving. And he holds that out before the Corinthians, the wealthy Corinthians, and says, doesn't that inspire you a little bit? Doesn't that challenge you a little bit? And indeed it does through the ages to us today. Now look at verse 7. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so now what the Apostle Paul does is he lists qualities of spiritual maturity. What does it look like to be a spiritually mature Christian? And these I think everybody's on board with. Nobody here's got a problem with any of these, I'm going to guess. He says faith. My faith in God, my trust in His promises, speech, the words of my mouth reflecting a mature faith in my heart, knowledge, a growing in my knowledge of, of, uh, of God and His work and redemption and all the rest, earnestness, a mature Christian is earnest in their faith, zealous for the things of God, passionate for the Lord's work, and finally, love, which of course is the supreme quality of all. Everybody's on board with that. That's what spiritually, a spiritually mature Christian looks like. I think even a Judas type here would be, yeah, I gotta probably say that's pretty good right there. That's a good, that's a pretty good list of what spiritual maturity looks like. Notice what Paul does though is that he adds to this now one quality that also is a part of spiritual maturity and it is giving and generosity. See that you excel in this act of grace also. What does a spiritually mature Christian look like? Faith, absolutely. Speech, totally. Knowledge of God, on board. Loving, absolutely. Generous. And what we see here is that there is no spiritual maturity without generosity. Let me say that again. There is no spiritual maturity without generosity. Now, you might think that I'm stepping on your toes right now because you might be saying to yourself, well, don't you suggest to me that I'm not a fine Christian man because I believed in Jesus when I was four and I uh, perfect attendance in Sunday school and I'm a regular attender at this church. So I hoard my money. Who cares? I'm not stepping on your toes. The Holy Spirit is. You can read it for yourself. How have we gotten to a place in the very wealthy American church where we divorce finances from our faith and don't see generosity as an indication that I am somebody who understands the gospel? Indeed, this is where many people stumble, I think, and why whenever the church gets up or a pastor gets up and says, hey, let's talk about money, or you read the passages that Jesus talks about money, this is why people in the church get squirmy. And right now, some of you are squirmy, I'll bet. Now, you're very stoic on the outside, but inside you're like, ah, right? I think he's going to say something that challenges me or that I don't like. And let me point out why we feel this conflict beyond the plain reality that we love money 
It's an idol to us. But a big part of this is a misunderstanding of what money really is from the, through the eyes of God. Let's just pause for a moment. What is money? Money is an indication of value, right? It's a, it's a piece of paper. It's a coin. It's a, nowadays, it's a, it's, a, it's a number on your online banking, right? It's, it's a digital number. But that number is an indication of value. It has the ability with its value to buy things, uh, to, to um, accumulate things. It, is, it, is, it has value to it, right? But from the eyes of God, it's not about what the value of the money is, but rather what I do with it says what I value. I didn't say that very eloquently. Let me make another run at that. Money is an indication of value. How I use it is an indication of what I value. And that is why Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. Not because what we do with money saves us, but what we do and how we use money is an indication of where our heart is. Now that was very eloquent. Did you get that? And this is why there's so much about it in the Bible. Not because of the money, but because of the heart behind the money. And this is why spiritual maturity always includes financial generosity. Always. In fact, notice the reason for this. He points it out in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now let's just walk through that for a moment. He begins by saying, for you know. If you're a Christian, truly, you already know what he's describing here. It's it's the most basic sort of description of the narrative of what Christ did. If you know John 3.16, you know what he's describing here. For you know, Christ, though he was rich. Now, what are we talking about there? Pre-existent Christ. Christ in eternity past, second person of the Trinity, prior to incarnation, prior to Christmas, in eternity past, he was God. Now, what's it like to be God, do you think? Is it an impoverished experience? Is God up in heaven uh, uh, begging uh, around the place, hoping to scrape together enough to eat? No, he's God, right? He's God. All glory is his. All majesty, power, dominion, and all the rest we sang in the song moments ago. It is all His. And so the experience of Christ in eternity past was one of absolute fullness, absolute glory, total joy. He was rich. The richness of His experience as the Son of God. In spite of this richness... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now what Paul is pointing out here is, listen folks, you ought to be impressed with what Mary did, but as great an example as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christ did. What did Christ give up? What did he, what did he give in terms of an offering? He gave it all. 
The guy that was the richest at the highest became the lowest. And that word there, poverty, is not a description, although we know that he was not a particularly wealthy man financially. It's more of a a statement about his experience. As he became a man, as he humbled himself to take on human flesh and lived in this world with weakness, now the Son of God is tired. Now he's hungry. Now he hurts himself. Now he feels the human experience. This is an impoverishment of the Son of God. And on top of that, of course, I think primarily is the impoverishment of his passion and his suffering. And so to think of the Son of God being bound by Roman soldiers, being beaten by the authorities, having a crown of thorns on his head, being flogged by men that he created, and then ultimately being nailed to a cross and dying in an ultimate moment of weakness, giving up his spirit. That is the poverty of the Son of God. The one who had the greatest highest became the very lowest. And why did he do that, folks? So that we, who are the lowest, we are the sinners, we are the wretches, we are the rebels against God, so that we who are the lowest, the most impoverished, might become rich. To be given the gift of eternal life, to be given eternal bliss, to be given forgiveness, to be, to be given the Bible and the church and the Spirit and all these things that we have as co-heirs with Christ, the guy who was the highest becomes the lowest so that those who are the lowest can become the highest. This is his generosity to us, the generosity of the Son of God. As the old song says, he gave his life, what more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. And so Paul's whole argument here rests upon the generosity of Christ to us. And this is the reason, friends, there is no spiritual maturity apart from generosity. Because the spiritually mature person is the person who gets the generosity of God to them. And that reflects then in their life. They get it, they get it and they tremble at it. Tremble at what Christ has done. That is maturity. The spiritually immature who, oh yeah, Jesus came for me, la 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 la. They are not moved in their heart and in their life to a, to a point where it connects with the other priorities of their life, primarily their money. And so they live in a kind of trite and superficial way where the gospel does not intersect with their billfold. Now, thankfully, we grow, don't we? We grow. And Judas's can become Mary's. And we celebrate that and rejoice in that. And I would bet even the most mature Christians that we have here, at points in their life in the past, this maturity was not evident. But this is how God works in our life and develops us and grows us. And that is a thing to rejoice in when we see it happen. But I want to say it again. There is no spiritual maturity without generosity because generosity shows that I get the gospel. This, by the way, is one reason I support something in our church constitution and in our practice here uh, regarding what you have to, regarding leadership in the church. You can read your own constitution. To be a leader in our church, you have to show yourself to be a faithful giver. And why is that, I think, a, a valid thing? Because it reflects and reveals a maturity spiritually. 
Now, just because you give generously, does that mean that you're spiritually mature? I don't think so. Bill Gates gives very generously, and other people philanthropically give generously. But there is no spiritual maturity without generosity. And frankly, if you don't have enough faith to trust God in your personal finances, do you have enough faith to lead a ministry in our church? I don't think so. It is the most basic step of displaying a confidence in God's ability to meet my needs. Jesus said it this way in Luke 16, if you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And this is what Paul is urging the Corinthian Christians. He's saying, look at the Macedonians. They got nothing. And they're joyously giving, begging for the opportunity to give more. You wealthy Corinthians, come on. Be inspired by their example and the example of Christ. Excel in the grace of giving. And that's my little exposition of the passage. Now, as I said earlier, this message is primarily helping married types figure out, how do I do that? Like, what does that look like? And so I would like to just, by way of application, talk about a basic guide to the generous life. And I really just have two things that I want to share here. The first one is what I'm calling simplicity in life. Simplicity in life. Now by this, I don't mean that you eat vegetables only grown in your own garden and that we all sort of move on to a commune where we wear clothing only made of burlap and sort of catch rainwater to drink and we just get all kind of Amish here. Now there's some of you here, I'd love that, all right? But I like ESPN too much, so we're not going that direction. (laughs) Here's what I mean by this, and it's just a simple reality. If I am going to be generous... I have to have something to be generous with. If I'm going to be generous, I've got to have something that I can be generous with. And the only way to have something that I can be generous with is if I live sufficiently beneath my income to create a generosity margin. Now, that's just simple math. But there's a truth there. And the challenge for us in particular is that we live in a very materialistic culture where through marketing and the opinions of our neighbors and just the way that we live as Americans, there are a thousand opportunities every single week to spend the generosity margin and to find ourselves in a place where, you know, I like to give. I just don't got nothing, though, because I have spent and committed myself so deeply there is no margin for me to give. Now, I've got good news for you, Christian. I've got good news. God has given you a weapon in this battle. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. When the Spirit is active in my life, I am more in control of myself than I have ever been. Which means then that as I live in this culture where I have billboards and advertisements and other materialistic people around me urging me to live at a certain level that I can't afford, creates no generosity margin, I have within me 
the Holy Spirit. And when I am yielding to his control in my life, I have the ability to say no. Did you know that? Now some of you are going, I can't do it. I go to the store and the items, they call my name. And they're saying, buy me, buy me. And I get the applications in the mail for the credit cards. And they're like offering only 10% a month interest, which is so much better than the 45% I'm paying on my current credit card that I, I got to sign up. But with it, I get, I, they give me extra credit there. And then I just don't know what to do. And la, 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 on it goes. You know what I'm getting at here? We live in a culture that begs us to disbelieve what this is talking about and to not live that way, to live at our means or to go in debt and to live over our means. And when I do that, what am I doing? I am not positioning myself to be able to be generous because I'm spending all of that generosity. The testimony we had from uh, this very cute couple in the front row. Weren't they cute? I just thought that that was just really great. Thank you for that. The testimony we have from this couple who shared some personal financial things with us. Thank you for that. That's not easy to do. Their testimony was that they had to get their financial house in order and for the purpose of living a lifestyle of generosity. I commend their example to you. It just seems to me that way too many Christians, and I've been doing the pastoring thing almost 20 years now, way too many Christians make unwise financial decisions in their life about any number of things that won't matter in eternity, and it keeps them from living a lifestyle of generosity. And this is where I think Financial Peace University or Crown Ministries, there's lots of groups out there that can kind of help us get our, our house back in order. And I would urge you to do that. I would further add this. I think that when God's people are living according to God's principles regarding what it means to love your neighbor, what it means to be a godly employee, what it means to have a good work ethic as the old Puritans used to teach, that there is built into the system of God's, this world here, a kind of prospering that comes when we, when we work hard and when we are industrious and when we're faithful on the job and when we are entrepreneurial. And all of that, I think, needs to be encouraged. Why? Because there are two ways to have more money. Spend more or make less. Or spend more, make less. Make more, spend less. You were about to run up here and just beat me over the head with that, weren't you? Dave Ramsey says, no. <laughs> so I totally blew that point. But you know what I'm saying? God's people ought to be the best employees in the company. And with that, there comes a kind of prospering, not all the time, but often. So work hard. Do it for the Lord. Simplicity in life. This is to ask the question. Listen carefully, everybody. This is to ask the question when I am making a spending decision, will this decision keep me from being generous to God? And if the answer to that is yes, then you need to think very hard about whether God would have you to make that decision. Because we know it's God's will that we be generous. Now, in saying that, that is not to say that spending money is wrong or having nice things is wrong or anything like that. In fact, as I stand here today, I've got, I'm wearing, this is, this is like my favorite watch. 
I wear it mostly on Sunday. It's kind of like my preaching watch. It's kind of nice, isn't it? It's a fossil, which isn't like luxury, but it's not bad. It's sparkly. Is it wrong for me to be wearing this? Uh, how about this shirt? This is actually the first weekend I've worn the shirt. It's a brand new shirt. I bought it at Macy's. Now, some of you are getting all judgmental preaching a message like that. He should be shopping at Walmart, not at Macy's. You'll be happy to know I got this and this major sale. Because that's how I roll, all right? That's how I do it. I like nice things. I don't mind delaying gratification so I can buy a nice thing. I don't think there's anything, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if I'm, by buying my fossil watch, now have no margin to give to God, Timex is fine. And we need to think this way and not buy into our culture's mindset and the idols of the community around us. And I also want to say on this that we need to love each other in the differences that we're going to have on this. Because what I don't want to create here is some kind of a neo-monasticism where all of a sudden you're all looking down the row and like, what kind of watch is he wearing? And all the BMW owners are rushing out of the service right now to get out of the parking lot quickly before anybody sees them driving a BMW. I personally like BMW. And you could allow the pastors to borrow that to find treasure in heaven possibly from that. But I don't necessarily think it's wrong to own a BMW. It's why I own it, right? Is it a status symbol to me? Am I finding my identity in that? Am I spending myself out of an ability to be generous to God and the supporting of his work? There's any number of questions that relate to that for our, our cars and our houses and our clothing and our jewelry and all the rest. And we're going to come to different conclusions on that. We all will give an account for our life. And we need to let God be the judge on that. But we need to personally ask those hard questions, don't you think? Why? Because there is no spiritual maturity apart from generosity. And we want to be a mature congregation with mature believers in it. Here's the second thing I want to say. And before I put this up, don't put it up yet. I really hesitate to put this up. I, I'm, I, I may tonight when I lay my head on my pillow regret that I have put this up. And the reason that I hesitate to put it up is that Legalistic types here are going to seize upon this as some kind of a measure of spirituality, either to make you feel good or bad, or for you to make other people feel good or bad. And I don't want that, okay? So I, I, I'm not totally comfortable putting this up. I'm gonna, but I, I'm not totally comfortable doing it. Also because God may be calling you to something more, greater than that. And so I don't want to make this some kind of a, well, if I've done this, then I must be okay with God because Pastor Steve put it up on the screen. So I have that hesitation as well. Have I sandbagged, we call it in golf, sandbagging? Have I sandbagged sufficiently on this point? All right, do you want to know what it is? You're all like, what kind of thing is he putting up there? Here it is. Remember Herman Cain, 999? 10, 10, 80. 10, 10, 80. 
And the reason I put this up is that we have people who have been Christians a long time here, but we have a lot of people that are new believers or are getting started in their spiritual walk, and you're kind of like, I don't even know how to start. What do I do? I want to be generous. What does it look like? Here, I think, is at least a place to start. So let me walk through 10, 10, 80. The first 10 represents what the Bible calls a tithe. Tithe is the Hebrew word for tenth. Okay, tenth. It comes from the Old Testament uh, teaching where uh, God's people were called to give the first fruits, the first 10% to God. We find uh, Abraham tithing to Melchizedek prior to the giving of the law. Uh, we, we find as well God making it a law in Leviticus 27 that God's people were to do this and along with other gifts that they would give for the priests and the temple and feasts and other things. But it was the first fruits, the first 10%. And the tithe in the Old Testament became a kind of uh, indication of where God's people's hearts were. Because like in the prophet Amos, we find that the people were giving their tithes, but their hearts weren't in it. And God didn't like that. And then by the time you get to Malachi, the people weren't even giving their tithes at all. And so the spirit of the people in the giving was a kind of indication of where they were spiritually. Now you get to the New Testament, and there's one place where Jesus implicitly endorses the tithe, Matthew 23, 23, but that's all you get in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the rest of the teaching is on what is known as grace-giving, 2 Corinthians 8, we just read this, grace-giving. And in grace-giving, it's not so much where I'm counting out my pennies to make sure that I've given my 10% to God, but rather it is the overflow of a heart that is in love with Jesus. And what does that kind of grace-giving look like? Now, some of you maybe are thinking, well, I'm going to breathe a sigh of relief because that first 10 was sort of scary. I can sort of settle back into the grace-giving number. Let me remind you of what grace-giving looks like. Paul describes it here in 2 Corinthians 8 with the Macedonians. Uh, Beyond their ability, urgently, and begging to give more and more all the time. Now, some of you are like, I think I kind of go back to that Old Testament 10%, thank you very much. Because that sounds like a, a more than that to me, if I was to give beyond my means, right? But that, therein lies the challenge in the New Testament is, it's not like a set number. But the tithe, I believe, is at least a good starting point. It's kind of like the training wheels of giving, the training wheels of generosity, how to get going with this. If you're a mature believer here and your heart is increasingly fell in love fell in, i don't like that language has increasingly grown in 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 love and treasuring of christ that number could have disappeared a long time ago for you grace giving so the question i think to ask here is not how little do i need to give to get by and to feel okay but rather am i laying up treasure in heaven am i rich toward god Am I a Mary or am I a Judas? Okay, so that's the first 10. Start with that. The second 10, I'm just leaning on experts in the financial world who say it's a good idea to save 10%. So give God 10, put 10 away in savings. And when you look at that 80, realize that that 80% is God's as well. Some people go, okay, 10% to God, 10% in savings, and the rest is mine to do as I 
desire. No, that, that 80% has got to be viewed as God's as well. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all is God's. So here's just a simple getting going thing. It's, again, kind of the training wheels of generosity. And so let me ask you, many of us are getting ready for our taxes here. Been thinking about 2011. What did your ratio, how did your ratio look in 2011? What would be your, what would be your numbers there? Now, before you look at that and go, <laughs> I'm doing awesome. I am so mature. Let me remind you of what Jesus ratio numbers were. Go and put that up. 100, 0, 0. Pastor Steve, nobody can live like that. You got to save, you got to be thinking, you know, you got to be investing and all that. And you know what? I agree. I live that way myself. I think that that's wise and prudent, and the Bible has a lot to say about that as well. But that ought to inspire us to greater levels of generosity and giving to God, don't you think? The example of Christ, he that was the richest became the poorest, so that by his poverty we might become the richest. And Paul just lays that out there and says, you wealthy Corinthian Christians, you just think about that. Let that sit on your soul and on your conscience and let it inform and direct what you do with the resources that God gives to you. I like that. One hundred, zero, zero. Now, a final word here today, and I, wanna, I just want to address something that maybe is in some people's minds. We may have somebody here thinking to themselves something like this. Steve, are you talking about all of this because we are uh, raising money for Mission Them? Yes, I am. Is that entirely appropriate? The answer to that, I just want to do what we do here at Bethel, is the Bible. What do we find Paul doing in 2 Corinthians 8? He's taking up a collection. What does it lead him to do? Talk to the Corinthians about generosity. Now the cause in this case was suffering Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Was that a noble cause to take up an offering for? I think so. What is our cause? Half a million people in our own Jerusalem who, from what we can tell, have no faith walk with God and are going to hell. And we want to reach them. Is that a noble cause to talk with God's people about generosity? I think so. I think so. And friends, this mission them, this is the kind of like big, hairy, exciting, visionary stuff where we're just saying we got a big vision. We don't know all the details. It's going to take resources. It's going to take generosity. It's going to take some very special leading gifts, frankly, for us to get there. And we want you to be in prayer about this and see what God leads you to do. And I want you to realize that, you know, what we're raising here, we're basically giving all of it away, other than some of the equipment upgrades and things in the auditorium. We're not building luxury suites here. There's no hot tubs for the pastor's offices. Although that's not a bad idea, I would have to say. 
All of this money is going to places and people that we don't even know. We're like giving it, in a sense, we're giving it all away to people out there who need the Lord. And I believe that to be a noble thing. And I hope it inspires us to generosity. And I would just say, if a fruit of mission them is that we all take a fresh look at our ratios in our life, and as a result of that, it moves us towards generosity, I think that that would be a good byproduct here. And I think that the Lord would be pleased by it. So that's the bottom line. May he be pleased and honored and glorified by the way that we handle his resources. Would you uh, please stand with me?